0: hello everyone what is up welcome back to another episode of killer instinct if you're new here hi my name is savannah and i'm your host of killer instinct before we get started make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button that way you never miss an episode we post weekly on the podcast every wednesday and then again every thursday on youtube as well and you are not going to want to miss it This week is actually the last week before Halloween. And if you don't know what Halloweek is, I've been talking about it for the last couple weeks. It is the one time a year where we post five back-to-back true crime episodes starting from October 24th all the way going until October 28th. You will have an audio version and a video version. It's the craziest time of the year, but it's also the best time of the year. It's a killer instinct tradition that we've been doing for about four years now, and you guys love it, which makes me love it that much more. So I'm really excited for you guys to hear the cases that we have this year. So make sure you guys are subscribed and turn on your notifications. That way you will be notified when every Halloween episode and just episode in general after that is released. Now for today's episode, as you guys can tell by the title, today we're actually talking about a serial killer case. Now we haven't done a serial killer case here in a while, however this one is absolutely wild and horrific and it was one that I really wanted to share with you guys today. So today we are talking about the serial killer Haddon Clark Haddon Clark was born on July 31st, 1952 in Troy, New York to his parents, Flavia and Haddon Sr. He was the second of four children and was raised with his family in a town called Warren Township, which is in New Jersey and about two hours from the city. Now, Haddon and his family lived a very well-off lifestyle. They lived in a large two-story house that had several acres of wooded area surrounding them. However, despite the lavish lifestyle they appeared to have, Haddon's childhood was anything but the white picket fence type of life. Both of Haddon's parents were severe alcoholics and Haddon witnessed them constantly arguing throughout his entire childhood. Haddon's father had difficulty keeping a steady job and was known to jump from job to job, and then he would take the anger and stress that he had from that home to his wife where he would physically assault her. Now, Haddon's mother was a very heavy drinker as well. However, when she drank, she had a different reaction. When Haddon's mother would drink, she would actually just single out Haddon out of all of her children and she would dress him up in women's clothing and then make fun of him for doing so. So she would dress him up in these clothes and then make fun of him. And she even gave him almost like an alter ego name, which was Kristen. So she didn't even refer to him as Haddon when she was basically tormenting him in doing this so she would call him Kristen. and as you can imagine that was a very traumatizing thing for Haddon to experience as a child and from very early ages Haddon's parents were convinced that he had some sort of head injury or some sort of head trauma due to an incident that happened during his birth and at the age of four hadden's mother actually brought him to the yale university child study center where doctors had diagnosed Diagnosed him with cerebral palsy and potential brain damage. Now, when Haddon's father heard this news, this was not something that he took well. It was not something that he was willing to accept. He didn't want to believe that one of his children could have potential brain damage, and he really used that against Haddon. He would yell slurs at his son and torment him and harass him, And not only was Haddon being bullied at home by his family and his parents, but he was also being bullied and teased by the kids at school. Haddon started kindergarten a few years later than most kids do, so he definitely stood out in his class and that made him a very easy target for bullying. And this is where a lot of Haddon's anger originally began because in grade school, middle school, going into high school, Haddon wanted to get revenge and retaliate against the kids that would bully him. So in order to do that, he would oftentimes steal the pets of the kids that were bullying him and decapitate them and dissect them. That was his way to get retaliation and revenge on the people that were bullying him. Now, Haddon was described as a very quick-tempered child. He didn't like being publicly ridiculed or told what to do, which most people don't. A lot of people don't like being publicly ridiculed. However, a childhood friend of Haddon's named Tony said that, quote, sometimes he couldn't control himself when he became angry. If something didn't go his way, he'd get very upset. All the kids would walk away and wait for him to calm down, end quote. And Haddon didn't have many friends in school. He was known to be by himself a lot of the times and was described by his brother as a loner. And Haddon also had a habit of cross-dressing. And many people believe that the reason for that is because that is what his mother would do to him as he was growing up as a child. There were many occasions where Haddon's mother and sister had noticed that Some of their clothing and undergarments were missing, so much so that Haddon's mother actually filed a police report because she thought that someone was coming into her house and stealing her clothes. However, one day she realized that it wasn't just a random person coming in and stealing their clothes. It was actually Haddon. Haddon would go into their rooms, steal their undergarments in particular and wear them. Along with that, a neighbor of Haddon's family had hired him to do yard work, and one day she said she came home and noticed that Haddon had gotten into her house, was in her bedroom, and was wearing one of her nightgowns. So regardless of the reason behind it, this was something that he continued to do independently hadden graduated high school in 1972 when he was 20 years old and after that he enrolled in culinary school in hyde park new york where he graduated two years later A few years after culinary school in 1982, Haddon then joined the Navy and became a chef. However, after being in the Navy for three years, he ended up being detained after showing very bizarre behavior and destroying property. He was evaluated by a psychiatrist who diagnosed him with schizophrenia, and three months after this diagnosis on June 22, 1985, Haddon was discharged. Now, after he was released from the Navy, he ended up moving in with his brother, Jeff. At the time that Haddon moved in with Jeff, Jeff was a single father who shared custody of his two children with the mother of them. And he also had a girlfriend at the time named Stephanie, who then would later go on to be his wife. Jeff took Haddon in and let him move into the basement of his house that was located in Silver Spring, Maryland. According to Jeff, he said, quote, "'As bad as he was before the Navy, "'he was a lot worse when he got out, Now, Jeff did not think that this was going to be a very long-term thing. He thought that he was just going to let Haddon move in for a few weeks while Haddon could get onto his feet. However, weeks then turned into months. And in September of 1985, Haddon was arrested again after he was caught shoplifting women's lingerie and Jeff was the one who bailed him out of jail. Now, in May of 1986, Jeff was absolutely done with it. It had been almost a year of Haddon living in his home, and he told him that he needed to move out. Haddon obviously wasn't happy with this. He did try and put up a little bit of a fight, but Jeff put his foot down, and he was not going to take no for an answer. Haddon ended up renting a hotel room and moved some of his belongings into it, however, returned on May 31st to grab the rest of his stuff so he could officially move out of his brother's house. So May 31st, 1986, Haddon went over to Jeff's house, and Jeff had decided that he did not want to be home when Haddon was there. So him and his children, as well as his girlfriend Stephanie, got in the car together and went to the park. They were there for several hours before returning back, and when they got back to the house, Haddon was loading up the last of his belongings into the car before he then got into his car without saying a word and drove away. Jeff thought it was a little odd that Haddon didn't say anything before he left. However, he was more so relieved that Haddon was finally gone. Now, later that night, Jeff, the kids, and Stephanie all decided that they were going to have a barbecue at their house. So they're all having a barbecue in the backyard. And then at about 5.30 p.m., one of Jeff's neighbors named Carl Doerr showed up to Jeff's house asking if anyone had seen his daughter, six-year-old Michelle Doerr. Imagine an app designed to make you use it less. Seems a little counterproductive, right? Well, Apartments.com's instant alert feature works exactly that way. Instead of scanning rental listings a million times a day, simply set and forget your search to whatever you're looking for in a place and let Apartments.com do the rest. From pet-friendly apartments to balconies to in-unit ACs, Apartments.com's powerful search tools let you know when the perfect combination of features you're seeking is listed. So you don't have to power through rental descriptions one by one. With more rental listings than anywhere else, Apartments.com's instant alerts mean that you can spend less time looking for the perfect place and more time on just doing you. Apartments.com, the place to find a place. Michelle was last seen walking into her backyard by her father Carl as she was heading to go swim in the blow-up pool in their backyard, while Carl was sitting in the dining room just feet away from her reading the newspaper. Now Jeff and Stephanie assured Carl that they did not know where Michelle was and they hadn't seen her all day. However, of course, they assisted in helping and looking for her, along with other families in the neighborhood, before police arrived on the scene. Carl told police that that afternoon, he was sitting reading the newspaper when he heard the screen door open and shut as Michelle walked into the backyard. He said that even though he wasn't outside with Michelle, he was still close enough and just reading the newspaper. He said that it wasn't until he had gotten up to open the windows of the house that he realized that Michelle was nowhere to be found. The backyard was completely still and the water in the blow-up pool was untouched. Now, when Carl noticed that Michelle wasn't outside, he then walked into the backyard and saw two of Jeff's kids playing soccer in their front yard. Now, Jeff also had a daughter that was around the same age as Michelle, and when Carl saw Jeff's kids playing, he automatically assumed that Michelle more than likely walked outside, saw Jeff's kids, and decided that she wanted to walk over there and play with the daughter. So he just figured that Michelle went over by herself and didn't tell him. And it wasn't until hours later at 5.30 p.m. when he went over to Jeff's house looking for Michelle that he was shocked to find out that she wasn't there. Carl immediately jumped into his car after going to Jeff's house and he started driving around the neighborhood before going to the police station at 6.30 p.m. to report her missing. Now, when police arrived on the scene, they obviously spoke with Jeff, because he was the neighbor, he was the one that Carl thought that Michelle was with, and when Jeff spoke with authorities, he did mention to them Haddon. So, police decided to go speak with Haddon, however, he adamantly denied anything about it, denied ever seeing Michelle, and said that he was just at Jeff's to grab his belongings and leave because his brother kicked him out of the house. Now, at first, police really didn't have any reason to believe that Haddon was responsible for this, and more so, they focused all of their attention onto Carl, They thought that it was extremely bizarre behavior for Carl to just not know where his daughter was for a several hour time period, and thought that it was suspicious that he went so long without checking on her. Now Carl ended up taking a polygraph test and police did search his home. At the time of Michelle's disappearance, Carl was in the midst of an ugly divorce and had made some threatening statements toward his ex-wife regarding Michelle, which obviously did not look good for him in this moment. Because not only do you have these threatening texts, you also have the fact that Carl was now the last person to see Michelle. And those two things combined are definitely what put him on the forefront of police's radar regarding Michelle's disappearance. Now Carl's polygraph test showed that while he was truthful about not knowing where Michelle was, he did know more than what he was telling police. Now a lot of people believe that that had something to do with the time frame of all of this however we will get to that in a moment so police are almost positive that carl had something to do with this they are dead set on carl however a new tip came forward that really altered that for police. And that was when police were contacted by a local gardener of the neighborhood that Jeff and Michelle lived in. And they said that the day that Michelle went missing on May 31st, this man was out gardening when he realized that he needed to make a phone call. And coincidentally enough, he decided to knock on Jeff's front door to make this phone call now when the gardener walked into the house he said that it wasn't jeff that let him into the house it was actually Haddon. so Haddon opened the door for this gardener the gardener walks inside and when he does that he noticed that Haddon had a little girl with him and this gardener said that the little girl that Haddon was with matched exactly the description of michelle So at this point, police knew that they again needed to speak with Haddon. Now, like I said, when police first spoke with Haddon, he claimed he never even saw Michelle on May 31st. He said that he spent his day moving the last bit of his belongings out of Jeff's house and into the hotel room that he had rented. Haddon claimed that all he did was grab his belongings, drove them back to his hotel room. He then got on his bike and drove his bike to work where he clocked in at 2.46 p.m. Now police were able to confirm that Haddon clocked into work at 2.46 p.m. And co-workers of Haddon's actually said that he had a bandage on one of his hands. Now when asked about this bandage, Haddon claimed that he had ran into a tree on his way to work and so he bandaged it up right when he got there. Now let's talk about this timeline that I mentioned earlier. When looking at the time he clocked in, which was 2.46pm, that would mean that Haddon only had 36 minutes to abduct Michelle and then go back to his house, drop off his belongings, get on his bike, and ride to work. Now, the reason he would only have 36 minutes is due to Carl's original timeline. Carl claimed that he had last seen Michelle at 2.10 PM. So between 2.10 and 2.46, that would mean that Haddon would abduct Michelle, do whatever he did to her, drive home, go to work, like nothing happened. However, when police confronted Carl about this timeline and how it seemingly did not make sense, he then began to unravel a little bit and he claimed that he couldn't specifically remember what time he last saw Michelle. He said it could have been anywhere between 12.15 p.m. and 2 p.m. So instead of that 2.10 timeline, Carl now admits that he probably didn't see Michelle for a couple hours before that. And the reason he claims that he didn't tell police that initially is more so out of embarrassment than anything else, because he realized that that looked really bad. The fact that he didn't know where his six-year-old daughter was for several hours leading up to her disappearance. However, now the police had this new time frame that obviously opened up the realm of possibilities of when Michelle was taken by a whole lot However, despite this new opening up of the time frame, police were really still headstrong about believing that Carl was responsible for this. They tried hypnosis on him and they also tried something called sodium amytol, if I'm pronouncing that right. And sodium amytol is also known as truth serum and they gave this to him hoping that something else would be told in his story. However, Carl was very consistent about what happened that day. His story about what happened never changed the only thing that changed was the time frame according to carl himself he stated quote they started brainwashing me putting thoughts in my head and playing mind games with me at one point they said well you didn't mean to kill her you just smothered her you put your hand over her face and it just happened right end quote So that was what this investigation looked like from Carl's perspective, and that is what he was experiencing. Now, a little over a week after Michelle's disappearance, on June 8th, police had interviewed Haddon again, and this time he had a very different demeanor. He became very agitated and irritable when police were asking him questions. He started screaming and throwing up and crying and claiming that he may have blacked out and done something, but he doesn't. Remember. Now, you might think that this would be the point where police feel like they have something to go off of, however, this entire interview ended up being terminated after Haddon had asked for a psychologist and an attorney, and from that point forward, police did not interview Haddon again, and Michelle's case went cold for several years. That was until October 21st, 1992. On October 21st, 1992, the Montgomery Police Department received a phone call from a detective in Bethesda, Maryland, who was working on a missing persons case that they believed was a homicide. The detective said that they were looking into the disappearance of a missing 23-year-old woman who hadn't shown up to work on her scheduled shift two days prior on the 19th. The woman's name was Laura Hodling. Laura was 23 years old at the time of her disappearance and was living with her mother, Penny. The detective said that Laura's brother had actually gone to her house and started looking for her after growing concerns from her mother as well as him when no one could get a hold of her. Now, when Laura's brother went to his mom's house to look to see if Laura was there, he didn't find Laura. However, who he did find was a gardener someone he described as odd and strange. And it's probably not a surprise when I tell you that that man was identified as Haddon Clark. Now, during the time period that Haddon had gotten kicked out of Jeff's house in 1986 to now in 1992, Haddon had worked in restaurant kitchens and would either rent hotel rooms or sleep in his truck. By the early 90s, Haddon had migrated to Bethesda, Maryland, where he was a regular at homeless lunches that were sponsored by the local church. Now whenever he went to these lunches, he advertised himself to the people who were volunteering there saying that if they ever needed any lawn work, or gardening, that he would be able to provide those services in exchange for money. And during one of these times that he was advertising this gardening service, there was a woman at the church who suggested that he speak to Penny Hodling, Laura's mother. Now Penny, at the time, was actually a psychiatric social worker, and while she did think Haddon was odd, she wanted to give him a chance and set him up for success. Now what we know now, that we didn't know back then, is that Laura had actually expressed some concern to her mom Penny over Haddon's behavior. She believed that he was stealing from their family and along with that, she just got a very bizarre vibe from him. She described him as creepy to her mom and asked her mom to not use Haddon as a gardener anymore. Now, what Laura didn't know was that Haddon had actually overheard this conversation and it made him furious. And because of that, on October 18th of 1992, Haddon had snuck into the Hodling's house when Laura was the only one home. He found Laura in her bathroom and that is when he took out a kitchen knife and began stabbing her before ultimately suffocating her with a pillow. He then carried her body inside of a bed sheet into his car and then drove a half a mile where he buried her in a wooded area. Now if that wasn't enough, Haddon wanted to create the illusion to others that Laura was still alive, that way he wouldn't be pinned as being the only person there because obviously he had a schedule with Penny as to when he was going to be at the house in gardening, so he thought the pieces of the puzzle would easily be put together once people realized that the only other person at the house at the time of Laura's disappearance was Haddon. So because of that, after Haddon had disposed of Laura's body, he then drove back to the house, walked inside, dressed himself in her clothing, put on a wig, and walked out to the front of the house, pretending that he was Laura. Again, the motive of this was for neighbors around to witness it and to see it. That way, if they were questioned by authorities as to when was the last time you saw Laura, it would have been after Haddon had left the house. Now, authorities ended up getting a hold of Haddon shortly after Laura went missing. Now, what Haddon didn't know at this point is that police had already found physical evidence that linked him to Laura. Police discovered the bloody pillow and pillowcase that was used to smother Laura just a few hundred yards from the home. Now, when they scanned it for fingerprints, they found Laura's DNA on it, as well as Haddon's. Now, there was no other visible blood in Laura's room or in the house in general because Haddon went back and cleaned up the crime scene. However, police were able to discover traces of blood on the mattress when they did luminol testing. Now, when police confronted Haddon with all of this physical evidence that they had, he immediately cracked and broke down. Again, he did the same spiel that he did with Michelle's case where he began crying and screaming. He got on his knees and said, quote, "'Oh God, I just want to die.'" He claimed that again, he may have blacked out and may have done something horrible. Haddon was arrested for Laura's murder on November 6th, 1986. However, police still did not know where Laura was at this point. And it wasn't until eight months after the murders occurred that Haddon finally led police to her remains. So when police arrested Haddon for Laura's murder, there was a detective named Detective Garvey who had worked as a supervisor for the narcotics department at the time. And he was very involved in Laura's case and he was able to look through Haddon's file and he saw that it was a possibility that he could be connected to the case of six-year-old Michelle Doerr. He learned that at the time of Michelle's disappearance, Haddon was living only two houses down at Jeff's house. However, ever since Michelle's disappearance, he had adamantly denied any involvement with her going missing. However, Detective Garvey knew that there was no such thing as a coincidence, and surely, Haddon being two houses down from a little girl who went missing was not a coincidence. On June 14th, 1993, Haddon pled guilty to the second-degree murder of Laura. He was sentenced to 30 years in prison and according to the defense team, the whole motive behind Laura's murder was because according to Haddon, he felt a very close relationship with Penny. He felt a very motherly relationship with Penny, so a very like son and mother relationship that he did not have growing up. So when he found Penny and finally found someone that wanted him to do well and wanted to see him succeed, That was a relationship that was really important to him, and when he found out that Laura was talking badly about him and asked Penny to let Haddon go, he viewed her as a threat to his and Penny's relationship and decided that he needed to get rid of her. So that is what he claimed was his motive. Now, when it goes for Michelle's case, at this point, police had really taken all of their focus off of Carl and were almost entirely positive that Haddon was the one responsible for Michelle Dorr. However, all they were missing was physical evidence. Now, while Haddon was in prison for the second-degree murder charge, he had completed a six-month evaluation at a psychological therapy center for inmates. Now, while he was there, he became friends with two fellow inmates, and one day, these two inmates had crafted a plan to set Haddon up. These two inmates decided that they were going to sit down with Haddon and start talking to him about Michelle's case, however, what Haddon didn't know is that they were recording him on a tape recorder the entire time. On this audio tape, Haddon confessed to these inmates that he lured Michelle into Jeff's home when no one else was there. He then claims he stabbed her to death with a 12-inch butcher knife before slitting her throat and drinking her blood. He claimed that he tried to rape her after killing her. However, he was unsuccessful. After killing her, he said that he then took Michelle's body and placed it into a green trash bag before taking the trash bag, putting it into a duffel bag, and then placing that bag into his truck. Now once these inmates had this confession on audio, they then sent it to police, and police thought that they hit the jackpot when they heard this confession, however, Haddon was very quick to try and dispute all of this. He claimed that he was just messing around with these inmates and that these inmates were annoying him and nagging him about the case. So he basically just said every outlandish act he could think of just to get them off of his back. And if you're wondering what the motive was for these inmates to do this at all, it was because they believed if they could get Haddon to confess to this crime, that they would get leniency on their own sentences as well. So even though police had this confession on tape, they still wanted to get physical evidence because even though Haddon can go and try and dispute this audio recording, there really is no disputing physical evidence. So what police decided to do is they went back to Jeff's house. Jeff allowed them to come in and search his property. And when police arrived, they beelined straight to a specific corner of the house and they ended up ripping up the floorboards. And when they did that, they discovered multiple traces of blood underneath these floorboards. Now lab techs were able to determine that this was human blood, however it had been there for so long at that point and so many years that they weren't able to figure out who the blood had came from, which was really crazy if you think about it, because they were able to take over 80 blood samples, however not one of them was viable. Now at this point police were desperate, they were even sending Jeff miked up, To the prison that Haddon was at on three different occasions and tried to get him to talk to Haddon about the case. However, Haddon dismissed it each time it was brought up. Now, police really had their hands tied at this point. They didn't know what to do. However, they were confident that even though they didn't have any physical evidence, they did have enough circumstantial evidence at this point to convict Haddon of Michelle's disappearance. So because of that, Haddon was arrested in his cell on Wednesday, September 23rd, 1998 for the first degree murder of Michelle Door. And two years later, on Thursday, January 5th of the year 2000, Michelle Doerr's remains were recovered. Now, I've seen multiple sources saying that the person that led police to these remains has never been publicly identified. However, there's also sources that say that it was Haddon. So I just wanted to mention that because it's not one over the other. There's an equal amount of sources that say both and at the time that her body was recovered, she had decomposed to being completely skeletal, which meant that police could not determine a cause of death. Her body was recovered from a heavily wooded area in a shallow grave 12 miles away from her home. The case against Haddon for Michelle's death went to trial, and Haddon was found guilty of second-degree murder and was sentenced an additional 30 years for her death. So now he had 30 years for Laura, 30 years for Michelle. Now even though these are the only murders that Haddon has ever been convicted of, it doesn't mean that they're the only ones that he's ever confessed to. Haddon claimed that he started murdering women when he was a teenager. In 2004, he sent a letter to police from prison saying that he killed a woman in Cape Cod, Massachusetts in 1974. And if you're familiar, you might know this case. It is the case called the Lady of the Dunes. Her identity has never been discovered and Haddon Haddon tormented police by telling her that he knew her identity, but he was never going to reveal it due to the treatment that he experienced by police. So along with that, in December of the year 2000, Haddon had actually led police to a bucket that was on his grandparents' property. And in this bucket was over 200 pieces of jewelry, one which was Laura's high school class ring. Hadden told police that many of the pieces in that bucket were the trophies of his many victims. Haddon also confessed to police that he had an alter ego and this alter ego was a woman who wore a bra and woman's underwear and a wig and that she was the one responsible for for the killings now again we don't know if that means that that is just a place that he went to mentally we don't know if that's real at all or if that's just something that he's saying just to try and shift blame or if that was actually real and during the killings he physically dressed up as a woman so that is what we know about Haddon clark and if that all wasn't horrible enough and terrifying enough and again we still don't know how many victims hadden really does have he's only been convicted of two but Haddon was not the only killer in his family and that brings us to haddon's older brother named bradfield bradfield was two years older than haddon and in the summer of 1984 bradfield moved to california and started working for a company and very quickly a coworker caught his eye This woman was named Trish Mack, and she became the center of Bradfield's attention, and Bradfield was enamored by her. However, the problem here was that Trish was married and also had no romantic interest whatsoever in Bradfield. However, this did not stop him. He had invited Trish and her husband over to dinner for one night. However, Trish's husband was unable to to make the dinner, so it was just Trish who went on her own to Bradfield's apartment. Now, during the dinner, Bradfield had made several sexual advances that were shut down by Trish. And ultimately, Bradfield then slammed her head against a wall before strangling her to death. He then dismembered her body and put her dismembered body parts onto a barbecue before eating them. He packed up the rest of her remains and put them in the back of his car, drove himself to the police station, got out of the car, walked in and told police her body is in the trunk now the likelihood that you have one brutal cannibalistic killer in your family is already extremely low however to have two killers in general then cannibalistic killers is almost unheard of And there was no way I could get through telling this case without telling you guys about Bradfield, just because it is mind-blowing. And so Bradfield is also currently in prison, serving out a sentence for Trish's murder. And as of today, Haddon Clark is still alive and is serving out his sentence at the Eastern Correctional Institution, and he is currently 70 years old. And that, you guys, is the case of Haddon Clark. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Let me know what you think in the comments below about each individual case, about Michelle, about Laura, how many victims you think Haddon truly has, about Bradfield, about all of it. So let me know what you think in the comments below. And with that being said, you guys, that is all for me today. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Killer Instinct. If you're new here, hi, my name is Savannah and I'm your host of Killer Instinct. Again, make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button. That way we never miss an episode. We post weekly on the podcast every Wednesday and then again, every Thursday on YouTube as well. And you're not going to want to miss it. Halloween starts next week. I cannot wait for you guys to see what cases we have in store for you. So until then, stay safe. Bye, guys.